I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6 tonight, and we're going to be considering the first eight verses in this classic passage of Scripture as we continue in our Ignite uh, theme, and I think you'll see that as we read the text in just a few minutes. It would be interesting to me to know what you brought to church tonight. <laughs> Ladies, I don't mean what do you have in your purse. If your purse is like my wife's, I wouldn't want to know what's in your purse. But uh, I wonder what you brought to church tonight. And I'll tell you why I wonder about that. Because I have one overriding thesis to the message tonight, which is a very simple message, but it has a powerful thesis. And here it is. What you bring to church both limits and defines what you take home. So that's why it's important what you brought to church. I, I travel a lot these days. I was in 42 churches last year. I spent a month in India. Our daughter and son-in-law are in a major city in India, a city of 22 million. If you put five, the population of five southern states in Knoxville, Tennessee, that's where my son-in-law serves. And so I travel a lot, and I go through a lot of airports. And I will be honest with you, I never have learned to like those x-ray machines. I guess I'm just a very private person, Pastor Don. But you know, I just don't enjoy going in, putting my hands over my head, and there you are, naked before God, and that, whoever that is, everybody, you know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to do it for safety purposes. Hear me, don't, I, I don't mean that. But I don't like it. Do you? I mean, I just don't like it. Uh, but I'm happy to do it because it's important for the safety. I want to fly safe when I go to India. But I thought about it sometimes as a preacher. It would be so nice if I had one of those spiritual, little spiritual handheld spiritual x-ray machines. Now, I don't think they make them. I don't even think Lifeway makes them. But if, if I had one and it worked, and I could, you'd, before you could get into the service, you'd have to walk by me. And I would take that little spiritual x-ray machine, and I would run it over your heart. And I'd find out what's in your heart. And I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm not a prophet, nor the son of the prophet. You know, I'm not the sharpest, uh, uh, you know, tack in the box or all of whatever you say. But, but I'm going to tell you something. Even a person like me, if I had that spiritual x-ray machine, I could predict with a great deal of accuracy what you were going to receive from this service tonight because it's very simple what you brought to church limits and defines what you will carry home and so the question I ask is what did you bring now in order to give you some some of uh, the things that I think is most important for you to bring I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 6 and we want to consider what Isaiah brought to church. 
and what that enabled him to take home with him. Now, for I, to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 is to turn to what I consider to be one of the most important passages in Isaiah's life. In fact, I was on the radio for a number of years when I was pastor in Corinth, Mississippi, and the title of the program that I preached was Glimpses of Glory. I was on at 625 every morning for glimpses of glory. Don't ask me why, that unheard of hour, but I was. And, and at least on Mondays I was live. I'd usually take the rest of the week on Monday. Now there was a preacher that came right after me. Uh, I won't say what, what church he was a member of, but we didn't call his program Glimpses of Glory. We called it Glances of Gloom. Because I would plant the seed and he would pluck them up. You know what I'm talking about? But, uh, but there was a program that came on right before me. That was an interesting program. It was also a syndicated program. It was called Moments of Destiny. And uh, this very resonant voice would come on. And it would say something like this. December the 7th, 1941. A moment of destiny. And he would go on to describe how the bombing of Pearl Harbor changed history as we know it. Well, if there had been a radio program back in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6 would have been Isaiah's moment of destiny. What happened to him in Isaiah chapter 6 it changed his life. He had, and can I just tell you, he got ignited <laughs> in Isaiah chapter 6. He got the ignition turned on in Isaiah chapter 6. And so we began in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now let me just pause to say Uzziah was one of the most loved kings in the history of Judah, perhaps second only to David. He had ruled for 52 years. He started ruling when he was 16 years old, co-ruled with his father for a little while, but he was, he was a greatly loved king. He restored Israel, Judah both commercially and militarily and prestige, came back to the nation of Judah again. So he was loved. He made one tragic mistake toward the end of his life. He usurped the authority of the high priest and went in to offer sacrifice. And as a result of that, you'll remember that he spent the last years of his reign as a leper. Now the leper, the king, has died. So in the year that King Uzziah died, means about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now, in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Now, the word seraphim it means burning ones. Uh, they were fiery created angels. They seem to have been assigned uh, the, uh, the particular assignment of protecting the holiness of God. So these were very important angels and each one had six wings and with two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another, now, that has the sense of antiphonal. They're not all just filling the room at one time speaking, but they're speaking back and forth to one another. 
And if you could imagine in your mind an angel crying out holy and another angel responding holy and another angel responding. And it just, it, it's a crescendo of expressions of the holiness of God. And, and he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's an interesting thing, but in the Hebrew language, when you wanted to put something in the superlative, you said it three times. And, and this is the only attribute of God that's placed in the superlative, the holiness of God. Uh, I think R.C. Sproul was right when he said, if I had only one word that I could use to describe God, it would have to be the word holy. And, and so he, these angels are crying out, holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Let me refer you back to this morning's message. What was it, what was it that Moses saw in that burning bush? He saw the Shekinah, remember? The Shekinah glory of God. That was the manifested presence of God. In the daytime, it was a cloud. At nighttime, it was a ball of fire. Well, what, what Isaiah seen, what I think he sees here is the Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. And, and then I said, woe is me. Now, that's an interesting turn of, uh, it's an interesting phrase because in Isaiah chapter 5, we won't take the time to look at it, but when Isaiah is preaching to others and pointing that long index finger out to the other nations and, and he says, woe are you and woe are you, verse 18, verse 21, a number of those verses, you can go back and read them sometime, Isaiah's preaching and he says, woe are you, woe are you, woe are you, and, and, he, and he describes what God has against those people. But then in Isaiah chapter 6, he gets into, his, into the presence of God, and God manifests his Shekinah glory, and, 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 and Isaiah no longer says, woe are you, but what does he say? Woe is me. Now, it's interesting, but the term woe, according to John MacArthur, was the way that the prophets expressed a judgment oracle against the nations. When you use the word woe, woe, it was a, it was a, it was a statement of uh, of oracle of judgment coming from God to those nations. So when you said, woe is somebody, that was a tough thing to say. And yet, notice how Isaiah turns it upon himself. And he actually pronounces an oracle of judgment against himself. Because when he gets into the very presence of God, he is overwhelmed with a sense of his own sin. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a, what does that say, church? Can we, trans, can we translate it this way? Having a mechanism of ignition. Having a live coal in his hands, which he had taken with the tongues from off the altar. He is screaming, there is no painless cure for sin. There is no painless cure for sin. He took the burning coal off the altar and he came and he placed it on the moist tongue of Isaiah. And you can almost smell it, can't you? You can almost hear the searing 
sound. He laid it on my mouth, verse 7. And lo, this has touched thy lips. Thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also, verse 8 begins with also. That's the old King Jim translation. Uh, I think the more accurate, perhaps, way of saying that is then, then, then I heard the voice of the Lord. The idea is not that this is just something that happened in continuation. It is something that happened because of what happened before. In other words, because you've touched my lips, because my sin has been taken away, then, only then, and not until then, I heard the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, here am I. Send me. Wow. Now what did Isaiah bring to that worship experience? That defined and limited what he could take on. Well, I want to suggest to you, first of all, tonight that Isaiah brought with him to church that day a broken heart. Notice what the text says in verse 1. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Isn't it amazing that oftentimes grief becomes the, 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 the telescope that brings God into our purview? I cannot tell you how many times in 47 years of pastoring that I would do a funeral on Monday or Tuesday and people would show up at church on Wednesday night that hadn't been there in years. Or Brother Don, I can't tell you how many funerals I'd do on a Thursday or a Friday or a Saturday, but I'd look out on Sunday morning and there was the family. Their hearts were tender. Their hearts had been plowed up by grief. Hey, and I want to tell you something. I know of no better place to bring a broken heart than the house of God. And I will tell you this. It's amazing what God can do with a broken heart when we will give him all the pieces. The text says, in the year that King Uzziah died. The text could just as easily have said, choir, in the year that my seven-year-old son died. Uh, the text says, in the year that King Uzziah died, but it could just as easily have said, in the year that my husband divorced me. The text says, in the year that King Uzziah died, but it could have said, in the year I found out my son is dying of AIDS. In the year King Uzziah died. When Isaiah slipped into church that day, his heart was crushed. There was no king on the throne. And that king was not only Isaiah's king. It was Isaiah's friend, according to many scholars. And according to some, it was Isaiah's kinfolk. There are those that believe Isaiah had blue blood running through his veins. That somehow he was related to the king. 
When Isaiah had walked into church that morning, he had just read the Jerusalem Gazette. The headline says, the king is dead. He walked in, heart heavy, broken. Isaiah had to learn a lesson that all of us have to learn. And that lesson is this, the throne of Israel may be empty but the throne of heaven is still occupied and God is still on that throne. Amen? God is still king of heaven. He's still on the throne. And it doesn't matter what it looks like down here. And, and folks, it can look kind of bleak sometimes, can't it? Yeah, I mean, it really can. But I, I, I'm encouraged by what, what the Scripture says. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the rivers of water, he turns it whithersoever he will. Hey, I gain comfort for that during a presidential election time. Amen? Oh, my. If you slipped in here with a broken heart tonight... I'm so glad you're here. It doesn't matter why it's broken. I, I was being ordained many years ago, sitting on the front row. You know, a preacher's just like a wasp. He's bigger right after his hatch than any other time in his life. And I'm sitting there as a young preacher, getting ready to start my first church. And my father in the ministry is preaching the challenge to me. I'll never forget something he said. He pointed his finger at me and he said, Tommy, if you will always preach to broken hearts, you will never lack for an audience. You know, I found that to be true in almost half a century. One of the things I practiced for all these years is when I'd come out and sit on the podium, I started looking for broken hearts. I looked for the single mom who's struggling with a rebellious teenager. I looked for that widow who'd been married for 60 years who just buried her husband. I looked for broken hearts. Now, I don't know you, so I don't know your broken heart, but I bet your pastor does. I don't know you in the choir. I came and spoke to the men a few weeks ago, and I talked about parental pain. And after that service, several of the men came up to me and said, Pastor, I know what you're talking about. You see, when you bring a broken heart to church, you're bringing, you're bringing a, a quality that will allow you to experience a moment of destiny. Now, let me tell you the second thing he brought. Not only a broken heart, but I want to tell you he brought a bowed head. He brought a bowed head. Why? Because of the awareness of his personal sin. When he got into the presence of God, he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Have you discovered that the closer you draw to God, the more the Holy Spirit turns the light on your sin? You know, isn't it amazing? You think you're doing pretty good, and, and, and you get on your knees, and you start confessing, and you just get honest with God, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit just turns the light on. And you say, Oh, my soul. But isn't it good? That the reason God does that is because he wants to cleanse all that old sin away. He brought a bowed head. He brought an awareness of his sin. I can't think of a better place to bring an awareness of your sin than to the house of God. 
I, I, I went to visit a young man. I had just, I'd baptized him. And after I baptized him, he started saturating the church with his absence. You know what I'm talking about? He just never would show up. And I said, what's happened to him? And so I went to see him. And, and he told me, he said, oh, Brother Tommy, I can't come back to the church. He said, you don't know what I've done. He said, I, I said, I'd never do that again. And I have, and I can't come back. And I said to him, I said, listen, brother, listen. I can't think of a better place for you to bring that awareness and guilt than to bring it into the presence of God in the house of God. Hey, listen, the church is not a hotel for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Bowed head, an awareness of our sin. I, I, I was preaching one day when I was pastor at Leewood in Memphis, and we were remodeling our sanctuary, so we were meeting in the gym. And this guy walked in, and, and nobody in our church had ever seen him before, dressed in black from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet kind of looked like a short Johnny Cash, you know, kind of looked a little bit mean. And uh, so when, when I finished preaching that day, he was right on the back. He stepped out immediately and started walking down the aisle. And, and so I did what I've been doing all these years. When he got about 10 feet from me, I took a step toward him and stuck out my hand. Well, when I did that, he reached back here and he pulled out about a 10-inch knife. And boy, I'm telling you, that'll make a Baptist preacher's life go in front of him in a hurry. I'm, I'm not kidding. I didn't know what he was going to do with that knife, especially in today's climate, although that was several years ago. But you know what he did? He laid that knife in my hand. And this is what he said. He said, preacher, all my life I've lived by this blade, and I am tired. I've got that knife in my study. And when I look at it, it reminds me that the best place a man with a bowed head over an awareness of his sin can be is the house of God. Did you bring an awareness of your sin tonight? I'm so glad you're here. Now, let me tell you the third thing he brought. Not only a broken heart and a bowed head, but he also brought a bent knee. A bent knee. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean he brought an awareness of the holiness of God. Uh, listen to what he listens to the angel saying, holy, holy, holy. Do you know the term holy means that God is totally separate from anything or anybody else. There's none other like him. God is holy. And so when, he, when, when Isaiah was aware of his sin in the presence of a holy God, then the only thing he could do. Now, I, 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 maybe I'm stretching the text a little bit when I say he bent his knee. I'm just thinking, how could you be in God's presence and not do that? <laughs> I, 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 whether he bent his knee physically or bent his knee spiritually, he came into the presence of God and he was humbled because of an awareness of his sin and he was in the presence of a holy, holy God. When I was in college, same place your pastor went to college, you know, when we're in college, we are theologians par excellence. We, we got all the answers to all the questions. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And um, we're like the Athenians. We have nothing better to do than sit around <laughs> and argue theological points all day. And so there was a preacher who preached the Tennessee Baptist Evangelism Conference. And uh, this, this is the invitation that that preacher gave. He was a well-known somewhat liberal preacher back in those days. And so this was the content 
of his invitation. When he finished his sermon, he invited all the young people. And there in the Tennessee Evangelism Conference, there's 10,000 teenagers. I mean, they fill up Vanderbilt. Fill it up. And this was his invitation. He invited those young people to come forward and have an existential experience with the holy other. Doesn't that make you want to shout? Come forward and have an have a existential experience with the holy other. Now, holy means W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy other. And I can remember when we young theologues heard that. Man, we jumped on that like white on rice. We thought, that low-down preacher, given such an invitation, come forward and have an existential experience with the holy other. But you know, I've thought about that now for 40 years. I wouldn't use his language, but what he said was exactly right. Folks, our God is holy other. There is none like him. None like him. Without sin, eternal, creator of the universe, immortal, invisible. What a God we have. John Piper was preaching a series through this text. And he, he learned the Sunday, uh, the week before he was to preach this text, he learned that a family in his church had discovered that their child was being sexually molested by a, a family member. And so when John got that word through the week, he said, you know what? I can't preach Isaiah 6 Sunday. I need to preach a message that will be what we would call, John didn't use this term, user-friendly. I need to preach a message that will help them get through this. That was his thinking process. But John goes on to describe, but as I prayed more, God closed that down and said, no, you preach what you were going to preach on the glory of God from Isaiah chapter 6. And so he did. He preached a series from Isaiah chapter 6. And he, and he says that some weeks later, the secretary buzzed him and said that this young father wanted an appointment with him. And, and so when the young father came in, he said, Pastor John, I just wanted to come by and tell you one thing. He said, you know that we've had the roughest few weeks in our life dealing with this thing of the sexual abuse. And he said, Pastor John, I just want to tell you something. That the only thing that brought my wife and I through this tragedy was the exalted view of our God which you gave us from Isaiah chapter 6. Hey folks, when we know we serve a God like that, when we know we serve a God who is infinite and immortal and yet he loves us, when we know there's a God like that who is invested in my life, 
through his son, Jesus Christ. Then, whatever we have to face, he is adequate. I wonder, did you bring about him? One other thing, and I'm, I'll wrap this thing up. It won't take long to tell you what we can take home. But I got one more thing I want to tell you that, that he brought. He brought a broken heart, bowed head, bent knee. The last thing I want to tell you he brought is this. This is it, choir. Open hand. He brought an open hand. He said, here am I. Send me. You see, the open hand didn't come until after he had the broken heart, bowed head, bent knee. Once we've experienced God like that, the only reasonable response, Romans 12, 1 and 2, the only reasonable response is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Open hand, here am I. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Walked into Ellistown Baptist Church six weeks before I graduated from high school. 17 years old. Seemed like I had it made. I had just signed an athletic scholarship to play basketball and baseball to, at college. I seemed, I had a beautiful girlfriend and loved her very much. But if that were true, why would I drive by my church and begin to weep? Why would I lay down at night and cover my head with the covers and cry myself to sleep because I couldn't live up to my own moral code, much less God's? And so I walked into Ellistown Baptist Church for the spring revival. Dr. Kermit McGregor was preaching. I had never met Dr. McGregor. I sat down on the back row where I always sat in my home church. Dr. McGregor got up to preach, and I'll be honest, I'd never heard anybody preach like that. The anointing of God was all over him. And it's like the Holy Spirit just jumped over these whole pews, and he got right back to the back and landed right in my lap. And the Holy Spirit just so moved on my heart that night that I was like Jeremiah when the invitation came. I wanted to sit there, but I couldn't. And I stepped out and I walked down the aisle. And I, I can't tell you everything that happened that night. All I know is this. I gave all that I was to all that I knew of him. And he changed my life that night. I walked into that church with a broken heart. My heart was broken over my sin. I walked into church that night with a bowed head. I was guilty. And God took that broken heart and that bowed head. And he brought me to a point of a bent knee and an open hand. Oh, how I pray that might happen to some of you this week and this night. You see, if you bring a broken heart, bowed head, bent knee, and open hand, you know what you can take home? You can take home the forgiveness of sin. Because Isaiah went home with the with his sin having been so thoroughly forgiven. The coal touched his tongue, and the Lord said, Isaiah, now you're in a place where I can fill you and I can use you. 
Isaiah said, here am I, send me. He went home with the forgiveness of sin. You know, I can't think of a better thing for you to take home with you tonight than the forgiveness of sin. To know that your sins have been completely washed away. He uses two word pictures here. One is your iniquity is taken away, and the other is your, your sin is purged. Those are two word pictures. One is of the scapegoat when they would take the, the goats and kill one and lead the other one out into the wilderness and leave him out there. And that's a picture of what God does with your sin. He takes it away. It's gone. And then, uh, and then when he says your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged, that's a, that's a picture of an eraser. God erases. How, how many of you are glad tonight with me that God has a big eraser? Amen? <laughs> Aren't you glad that, that he, he washes away our sin never to remember them anymore? Can I tell you, if you bring a broken heart, bent knee, bowed head, and open hand, you can take home the forgiveness of sin. Let me tell you one other thing you can take home. You can take home the voice of God then I heard the voice of the Lord how long has it been how long has it been since you have absolutely known that God has spoken to your heart through his word the year was 63 B.C. The Roman general's name was Pompey, the most decorated of all Roman generals. Three triumphants in his honor. He moved into the Holy Land to take possession of the Holy Land in the name of Rome. When he got to the city of Jerusalem, he was met by the religious leadership, the high priest and his entourage, dressed in their religious regalia. And they begged Pompey, please do not desecrate our temple. Please, please. But with total contempt, Pompey pushed them aside, walked straight to the temple with his soldiers. Walked through the court of the Gentiles, walked through the court of the women, walked through the outer court, and it became obvious he was headed to the holy place en route to the most holy place. And again, the high priest begged him, please, please, general. Our high priest only goes in there once a year. That's the most holy place in Israel. Please don't desecrate. According to Barclay in his commentary, Pompey pushed them aside again, total content, lifted up the thick curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and walked in. But history tells us, according to Barclay, that Pompey didn't stay in there very long, and that when he came out, he had a somewhat frustrated look on his face and this these are the words of general Pompey when he walked out of that place he said and I quote there is nothing in there but darkness that's interesting is it not 
that in the same place where Isaiah saw the Lord, Pompey saw nothing but darkness. What's the difference? The difference is Isaiah brought a broken heart, bent knee, bowed head, and open hands. Pompey brought arrogance, unbelief, jealousy, violence. What you bring to church limits and defines what you take home. What'd you bring tonight? I'm, what'd you bring? Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? I can't help but believe that in this room tonight, there are some broken hearts. There are some broken hearts. I want to ask you, are you willing tonight to give him all the pieces? I want to tell you that being in the presence of God with a broken heart is not a liability, it's an asset. Because the scripture says the Lord is near unto the brokenhearted. And so if you're brokenhearted here tonight, I want you to know God has a special place for you. He loves you and he wants to be near to you. And I'm going to ask you tonight to bring that broken heart and give all the pieces to Jesus. That may mean you just need to come and pray with a staff member. It may mean you just want to come and kneel here and pray. But whatever it takes for you just to, to bring that broken heart and give it to our Lord. Then I wonder if you brought with you a bowed head. Young people, I wonder if there's a young, I wonder if there's a teenager here tonight that was like I was when I was 17 years old. I was so bowed down with guilt. I had tried and failed and tried and failed so many times. I wanted to be better. I wanted to live better. I wanted to do right. But every time I tried, failed. Because I was trying to do it in my own strength. Would you bring that bowed head tonight and just let God lift your eyes to Him. Lift your face to the Lord who loves you. Maybe the bowed head would lead to a bent knee as you just come up here and Get on your knees and say, Lord, Lord, I, I give this broken heart to you. There may be a young person here tonight, and, and you just simply need to open your hand and say, God, I believe you're calling me to some kind of ministry. And I want to tell you tonight, Lord, I've got an open hand. Here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Father, now in these moments of worship and reflection and response to what you're saying to our heart help us to be transparent to be honest and open with you lord do in us everything you need to do tonight in order to do through us everything you want to do tomorrow in jesus name